Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My next guest is one of the smartest guys in the business. He has worked both sides of the counter and has excelled tremendously. He's currently a pro better and a sports book consultant. I think of him as the go-to problem solver. Please welcome Elihu Feustel. Elihu, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Elihu, I start off with how was life growing up? Oh, well, I, I grew up in Virginia. Um, <laughs> got bullied amazingly bad as a kid. But uh, both my parents were math professors. Um, I wasn't very, I was definitely not popular. And I was a big time board gamer. So I played, you know, I played lots of games starting as early as, you know, second grade. That's when I, I first started with Squad Leader. I don't know if you ever played Squad I Leader. I have, yes. Advanced Squad Leader as well. And I, I had that, but I got tired of it. So I sold it. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so you, 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 you're both parents were math professors. Um, yes. That must have been so math came pretty easy to you, huh? Uh, yeah, I, I was. Yes. So because it, I mean, it was in, it was in the family like they had they had games, you know, on set theory, you know, that would just be in the attic and they had books on math in the attic. And just, you know, when you're bored before the Internet, you don't have cell phones. What do you do? You just read whatever's laying around your house. Yeah. So um, and uh, my grandfather, my dad would pay me to read books on math and physics. Oh, wow. So if I wanted to, if I wanted to have money, and I didn't necessarily have to understand it, but to you know just try it and get exposed to it. So math, physics, astronomy, you um, paid me to solve the Rubik's cube. <laughs> My dad oh. was very good at motivating me with money because I was you know I had no money. <laughs> wow, that's great. So were you a speed cuber? No, nah, no, but I could do it in you know maybe a couple minutes at one point. Oh, beautiful. All right, yeah, because I see these savants that could do like the cubes, like they're just that's all they do. They just they they live um, life just solving the cubes. It's like, oh man. Um, so, yeah. uh, so, so all right. So you said you were bullied. Um, you know what I mean? Is um, was it, what bullying was 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 uh, did that affect you in a negative way, or were you able to um, kind of get over that? Let, let's talk a little bit about that because that's an important topic, I think, in in, in, huh. in society. I was. I had two things that were a bad combination. Yeah. I was small compared to the kids, you know, until about seventh grade. And I had a smart ass mouth. Uh-huh. So in hindsight, I can look and say most of the times I, you know, had people beat me up. It was my fault. I was, you know, most of the things that happened, if I, you know, I could have avoided if I had been a little smarter. Gotcha. Um, you know, so you get, you get a little less stupid. And then when you, you know, in a year, I went from being five, two to six, one and, you know, bulked up like 40 pounds and then people didn't hit me as much. <laughs> gotcha. Awesome. All right. So, um, so what, did, when was your, was there any, you know, I guess playing board games, it's not gambling with money, but you're still, you're still trying to win at a game. There's a competition involved. Um, you yeah. know, were you, were you into sports at all or was it just gaming? I was never, I mean, Yes, I liked sports. I was just never good at most of them. Gotcha. Um, I, I was I was okay at tennis. I started doing fencing in college, and I actually got pretty good at that. I still do that. Beautiful. So, um, with respect to to, uh, to gambling, when was the first interaction mm-hmm. that you kind of had with you know placing a bet or 
seeing somebody place a bet at all or book a bet? Uh, the first time was I'd never actually seen someone place a bet. Uh, there was a friend of mine who's actually a partner now, but I'm not going to name him. Um, he uh, got me into sports betting in 2001. I mean, I've been playing blackjack before that. Uh, and he's like, why are you wasting your time on blackjack? You can make a lot more money on, on sports betting. And I didn't believe him because I didn't believe anyone wondering gambling. But he showed me the, his, the mathematical approach of what he was doing. And it was amazingly simple and ridiculous back then. Uh, we were looking at Sagarin ratings on NFL for big dogs. And back in 2001, uh, you could bet just about every big dog in the NFL because the market wasn't very efficient. Not everyone. But I remember like we started when the Houston, Houston Texans ex, you know, came into the expansion. And they were huge dogs every time, and they were a covering machine. Gotcha. So that was your first while. Okay, so before we get to 2001, let's talk about after high school, where do you go to school? Yeah. Um, what, what, uh, what do you study? Um, so I went to Rose Holman. It's a small engineering school in Terre Haute, Indiana. I uh, studied, got a degree in computer engineering, a minor in math, although I was four hours from getting a second uh, major in that. Um, but I really loved the math more than any of the stuff. So I had an amazing professor, Professor Gary Sherman. I think he's retired now, but he taught a lot of the, my, my two favorite topics in math were discrete and combinatorial arithmetic. And, you know, also had some graduate probability where you're just, you're just looking, you know, some of the stuff in the discrete area was just bonkers that you're looking at. So it's just, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, and my whole, like when I went to college, my goal wasn't to get AIDS. My goal was to, to learn things and have fun. You know, just like now, my goal isn't necessarily to make the most money. Uh, having a balance between achieving and enjoying your quality of life is something I've always been, you know, maybe I've, I've erred too much on the quality of life and not enough on the achieving. All right. So, so you, you love math. You love this professor yeah. kind of, and, and, and computers who, you know, obviously given your, your, your parents were math professors, that was a natural fit computers, you know, was a pretty yeah. big major back then. Um, did, did coding come naturally to you? Did you enjoy that? Quite by accident. Okay. Um, I ran a computer bulletin board back in the, you know, pre-internet days when people would call a computer with your modem. And I loved games and I loved, and I actually started writing games. So I think uh, I got a TI-99 when I was in third grade. And the first thing I did was try to start writing games. And then, you know, by the time I'm a you know, senior in high school, uh, you know, I'm a bad programmer, but I can make things happen. <laughs> and so I was able to write a, I write a couple games for the bulletin boards and actually made money doing it. So Awesome. All right. You graduate school, then what, Elohim? Uh, well, went to Rose Holman, uh, recession in 92. Uh, I applied for lots of jobs, didn't get any. Um, applied to a lot of grad schools. Most of them turned me down. <laughs> uh, I was admitted to exactly one law school, which is Valparaiso Law School, which is no longer operating right now because they uh, had to close down because I think their bar passage rate was too low. Uh, the other option I had was to study artificial intelligence at Clemson. And um, in hindsight, that probably would have been a, a better choice. I always joke that my brain is still sharp now because I wasted nine years in law, not thinking at all. Because <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's some thinking in, 
in law. There's some analysis, but the uh, the level of intense thinking is much higher when you're doing problem solving for sports betting or board games compared to law. I mean, a, a lot of the work as a lawyer is BS or just you know blow torching time, doing the same thing over and over. And it was fun. You know, jury trials are fun. It's a game. It, every trial is potentially just a game if you're trying to win. You know, and there's different victory conditions for every lawsuit you face. So, I mean, I like, I always like the gaming aspect of it. What year are we but, talking about where you passed the bar and become a lawyer? 1995. Gotcha. So you passed the bar. Um, and then what kind of law did you get into? Uh, first, I started working as a personal injury lawyer. Again, this is the only job offer I got. <laughs> and curiously i got the job because i had a computer engineering degree and he wanted a lawyer who could also run his network so he could save money so <laughs> that's great um, i i worked there for four years um he he had some questionable business practices and then went to club fed for about six years for uh dipping into his client trust fund and not paying it back hmm. but i had left before that thing you know exploded and did five more years of defense work with a, a firm I was really happy to be with. And, um, but the, the problem that happened when I was at the defense, you know, I started, uh, I was working with Row and Row. And after about, you know, a year into it, that's when I started playing blackjack. Two years into it, I started doing sports betting. You know, and a year or two later, I'm making more from the sports betting than I am from being a lawyer. So 2004, um, I left the, the full-time practice of law. And have been doing sports betting or consulting or a combination of the two since then. So blackjack, that's that's the a kind of a gateway type thing um, into, into ga gambling. gateway gambling drug. Yes. Gateway, <laughs> so what what got you into blackjack? What what was the first? You know that that was kind of like the first uh, uh, sign. What, what made you get excited about that? Well, I I wouldn't say I got excited, but a classmate of mine from law school uh, told me you could make money playing blackjack. Yeah. And, you know, every, every reasonable person knows that no one wins gambling. So he said, no, really, you can't. So to prove him wrong, I wrote a blackjack simulator, you know, play a million hands a minute with basic strategy, a million hands a second, basic strategy, 18 strategy adjustments, you know, bet sizing based on the count, variable number of decks, variable number of penetration. So you could see exactly what your edge is in different situations. And I was shocked that you could actually make money doing this. So then I, you know... The first uh, counting system I learned, in hindsight, this was stupid also. I learned uh, Blackjack for Bloods, they're, they're AO2. So it's a level two count with a mm. side count, which is really overkill for any six-day game. Yeah. And later I learned high-low, which is, you know, you know high-low you can play for 12 hours drunk off your ass and be fine. AO2 you can do, I could do for about two or three hours and not get a headache. Gotcha. So... So blackjack, did you wind up doing it on the side as a lawyer? Did you wind up making money doing it? What, what, yeah. What, so, uh, I mean, I mean, I, the first you know six months you're doing it, you're learning what not to do. You're you know minimizing your mistakes. You're improving your accounting. So you know I broke even for the first six months, and then it became a, a pretty reliable earn for the years after that. Um, I had one kind of funny gambling story related to blackjack where. I was set to get married <laughs> and a week before I was in my wedding, 
I get a call from uh, one of my betting partners. You know, a lot of guys in, in, who do sports betting also do blackjack or do backgammon or do, you know, they, or poker, you know, yeah. this, a set of skills that makes you good at one makes you good at pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. So it's, if you can do the risk management for sports or blackjack, it all carries. So, uh, you know, when, when I was with this partner in Vegas, sometimes we'd go out and play blackjack if we didn't have any betting to do, you know, just another way to increase the earn with your downtime. But a week before I'm going to get married, I get a call and I'm told there is a game in Oklahoma City or no, just Oklahoma, I forget where, where they're paying two to one blackjacks. So now a two to one blackjack game, if you know, all the other rules are normal. I mean, you have about a, a you know, one and a half, two percent edge off the top without counting. Mm. So we flew a scout in uh, to check out the game and he got kicked out within an hour because he was, you know, he was counting and changing his bet size. They figured it out very quickly. Um, so they said, all right, I'll try it. I'll go out and try it. And I went in and I just did flat betting. You know, I think the max bet was 500 a hand. And with a game that good, you don't have to count it and you don't have to change your bets. So, you know, did that for, you know, first day, there were only a couple people. Four days later, the, every seat was full of pro bettors. <laughs> Everyone betting, you know, um, and, you know, they, they eventually tapped me out, even though I wasn't counting, but made like maybe, I don't remember how it was like 20, 25,000 in three or four days. Wow. Amazing. So this is, you know, incredible side income. You're still a lawyer at the time or no? That was after I was a lawyer. Oh, that was so, after I mean, when I was, yeah. I mean, when I was a lawyer, you know, I, I you know, I, I didn't have a huge bankroll, mm. you know, still fairly new. So you know, I could play – if you play a game where you're betting 25 to two hands of 250, you know, maybe you're making, you know, 150, 200 an hour long-term, plus or minus 2,000. So it's a good earn, but you, you know, you have to learn really to play within your means so you don't bust out. Gotcha. That's what I hear a lot, you know, pro blackjack players. They say for every, you know, one successful one that winds up doing it for a long time, there's there's dozens that just fail or bust out or – don't have the discipline or money management to just stay the, stay the course. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's, you know. it's not, it, it takes a surprise. I mean, you need to play a, tw- a $25 game. You need, I think you need about 30,000. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I haven't done the math or looked at this in maybe 10 years. So yeah. I, I hope my numbers aren't too bad off, but um, I mean, it's, you know, it's one easy to overbet. Uh, the other thing is, of course, the longer you play, the more places are going to ask you not to play. And then there's a whole other game of going back. How do I go back and play at places where I've been asked not to play without getting trespassed or kicked? And another game is how do you play an uh, you know, AP game where they think you're a moron, which is um, you know, doing other things. Like you know, if you're doing ace tracking and you're betting you know, a huge bet off the top, they think you're a moron because only idiots bet big off the top. Hmm. Or if you're doing slug tracking and you get, you know, you can track it when they had the weak shuffles. I remember there was a Harris casino in uh, Gary and they did a, a stepladder shuffle, which means when you get to the very bottom, they've only shuffled the, you know, the bottom 12th with the second bottom 12th segment, just one time. So when you have a shuffle like that, it's very easy to, you know, do slug tracking. So you identify uh, either a, a positive slug and you, you know, cut it to the top or a negative slug and cut it to the very bottom. And then you can either fire off the top or bet in such a way that 
if somebody, if they reverse count what you're doing, it doesn't make sense. Beautiful. Man, it's so deep, the blackjack stuff. I love it. I love hearing about it. Okay, so so your, your friend now in 2001 kind of tells you, um, hey, listen, you can make more money betting sports. Different friend, obviously, yeah. Um, yeah. Than, 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 than blackjack. And um, and so, so let's talk about that. How did you get into that? Well, he, I didn't I, believe him. Yeah. He showed me his approach, and it looked like it worked. So we bet NFL, yeah. uh, which is the dumbest thing we could have done, is betting NFL spreads when I first start. There's no harder market to beat. But there, you know, there, the dogs may have been a little bit inefficient, but mainly I was lucky, not smart. But we still we made, we made good money the first season. Uh, and then I got extremely lucky, lucky, but didn't realize it for many years later. NFL is over. What do we do? Well, arena football starting. Mm. And these Saturn ratings can't be that bad. I bet I can make power ratings. So I made power ratings for arena football. We started betting it. And I mean, it was the arena football lines w- were very easy to beat in 2001. And, you know, for the next couple of years. And, you know, you go a little, just a little deeper into it. Like if you, um, I did a little bit of work on second halves and derivatives and the most of the books tried to use conversion charts for arena football that were similar to NFL. So, you know, if, if a total was a hundred, you know, they may divide that total by a quarter and make it, maybe knock it down a bit, but a game with a, you know, arena football total with a hundred, the fair first quarter total might be 20 and a half. And they were dealing, you know, 25 and you're getting, finding all these, you know, six, eight, 10% edges. But the, the most ridiculous one we saw were the second half waiters. You know, in the second half of, you know, in arena football, you know, possession is typically worth about five points. You know, you're going to score two thirds, three quarters of the time, every time you have the ball. And if you're receiving, you know, that possession that you're getting an extra half possession. So, you know, receiving, receiving is worth a lot in every sport, but it's worth more in arena football than any other sport. So you, you know, and if the bookmaker isn't accounting for who's receiving, you know, you're going to pick up an extra three points, you know, you're going to win 55% of the time. And if you can find the spots where not only are you receiving, but you have a team that's down. And when the favorite has the ball with the lead, they're going to run out the clock. You're basically getting a full possession. So a full possession, five points, you know, so I think we hit about 60%, you know, on all these second halves. So it was just uh, the candy day stores and we didn't even realize it. So, but yeah, I got lucky by picking a small market that was inefficient and didn't even realize it. So you're doing this now. You said you're making more money on the side than at your job. When do you say that's it? I'm done with law. Uh, about 2004. So, okay. I mean, it takes a while to, to, to build your bankroll up. Yeah. Because, um, so, and I, I, I still, you know, liked all the lawyers. And I still, you know, kept in touch with them. And, you know do an occasional case pro bono, but for the most part, I don't do law anymore. Gotcha. You need to do pro bono to maintain your license or? or... No. Um, the only thing I have to do to maintain my license is take continuing legal education classes. Gotcha. But, you know, I don't like it when people get screwed by insurance companies or just generally, screw, you know, screwed in general. You know, I, I want to think that the world is a good place somehow. And so every once in a while I would take a case, where somebody's just getting a raw deal and, you know, just to, to help one person. Beautiful. 
Okay. So now, um, when does the consulting start? Is that, are you betting now full-time for, for, from 2004? When does, when, when does the consulting job kind of come in? When do you, uh, you know, uh, when do you start? I know you started writing some blogs and stuff. We could get into that a little yeah. bit. When, when does that start? So, off? well, 2004, I, I started, I did, uh, some consultant work for Pinnacle okay. and did, uh, you know, I didn't like, you know, you had to be you had to be on the island of Curacao to, to work there, and it's I didn't like Curacao very much. Um, so I you know after a year I just it wasn't for me, uh, but you know I still got along well with them, and they they were starting U.S. marketing before you know Black Monday, uh, and Simon Noble was the head of marketing, so he started uh, he created a weekly news article called the Pinnacle Pulse. Where we look at, you know, it'd be about you know, 500,000 words a week and just look at various topics to try to educate sports betters. And so I would do most of the content writing and that, you know, came out every week and it was pretty popular back then. Yeah, very popular. A lot of people loved it. And, you know, it's like how sports was actually giving us valuable information um, and, and really sound advice. You know, most sports books would never think of doing such a thing. Uh, how did you wind up landing the job at Pinnacle? What 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 made that happen? It was a combination of arena football, and uh, I knew Fezic, and Fezic recommended I contact Henry. Okay, so Henry Fezic- H. Harrison is is the was the purported CEO or whatever you want to call it, the head trader, boss man, That's- whatever you want to say he is. Yeah. So and then Fezic was working with them as well, or how did how did he got you in? I don't know that if he was working with them, uh, but he was familiar with them. They were familiar with him and he gave me a name to contact. Beautiful. You still speak, you still keep in touch with Fezzik or no? I, I see him on Twitter, uh, gotcha. but no, I don't, you know. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, so you, you get in touch, Henry. I, I, I remember Henry would always say if I, if uh, it's either I could beat you or I'm going to hire you. That was always <laughs> the, the, the line. So, yeah. um, and he couldn't beat you. So we wound up hiring you. Um, yeah. and, um, and, and so you, you go to Curacao, what else are you doing besides content? Are you seeing any of the bookmaking side or are you, tr- you know, trying to help out with other aspects of the business? What was your day to day like? So back then I was helping them set odds on, uh, like opener odds on arena football and lots of props. And I remember, you know, when I first got my, <laughs> My first taste of pricing props was they were having me price props on on markets that I get one bet on at 105 pricing. Which, if you have any, I, you know, I think we I broke even at the end of three months trying to offer that. Which, which is you a know, big I, win. I actually felt wait, for me. I think that's a big win because I mean the people that came after me got just crushed. So, but yeah, it's uh, it's very tough to to try to beat a market with you know 105 pricing. But the goal wasn't at that time wasn't so much to make money as it was to increase the market size. So one way to increase, you know, a bookmaker's volume is to offer lower holds. You know, if you offer a lower hold, your profit per dollar bet immediately goes down, but long-term you gain more volume. That was always the pinnacle vision. And that was what they call the pinnacle model. And Henry of course was big into that. And how did he um, kind of spread that around back then? How was that, you know, how was the culture back then when he just, you know, kind of uh, uh, set that um, into everybody's mindset? Um, the culture know. in the company or in yeah, the public? in the company. Oh, uh, 
you, you get marching orders, you do what you're told. So that was that was it. Um, yeah. Who was the head guy at, uh, back then when you were there? I believe it was Henry. You know, there okay. was there was there was no person I saw giving him you know instructions. Was there was was what, 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 how about traders and stuff? Guys that are moving numbers um, besides Henry. Um, anybody else moving numbers that you remember? Uh, yeah, but I'm not going to mention any names. Gotcha. Fair enough. Okay, so um, so you're there only a year. Um, what happens next? I come back to the states, and then we start doing the. I'm still betting the whole time, um, and then I start writing the Pinnacle Pulse for about three years. Okay, so you're still kind of doing like consulting work in the sense of just doing creating content and and all yeah. that, and you're still betting. What are your what, what kind of edges are you seeing now? This is two thousand six seven ish. Yeah. So in the, the my my first phase of sports betting, I was mainly attacking full game spreads, full game totals with modeling. So mostly hitting uh, overnights, but you know attacking full game it, again. I look back and wonder what an idiot I was with all the approach I tried. Cause instead of going, you know, <laughs> instead of playing rec league, you go straight to the NBA. That's not the way to do it. You want to, you should learn on the easiest stuff, not the hardest stuff. Mm. Uh, and trying to beat full game markets is much harder than props, which I later did or derivatives or even live betting, which was very immature was pretty easy to beat. So I, you know, started with pregame, a tiny bit of derivatives, but not much. This is important, I think, for the listeners to understand this. Like, you know, you know, you even admit it. You know, you got lucky betting the NFL, um, betting, get, betting full game stuff. These are the most mature markets in the world. It's so hard to beat, and you want to work your way up, not work, not start at the top, thinking that you know what I mean, because yeah. that's when you can get crushed. So it's yeah. important for anybody starting off that thinks, hey, listen, maybe I want to handicap a game or I want to start doing a model. It, try to beat the props first. Go on a player-based, uh, you know, try to figure out how many uh, points one person's going to score instead of finding out how many points the whole team is going to score. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think if you just take it on that granular scale and build it up, then you can kind of take it to that next level. But I think that um, it's a very, you know, it's a good point that you just made, uh, Elohu, that, that, that I think is, is missing for a lot of guys that they just think that, hey, listen, and I could just start and take on the world right off the bat. Um, okay, so you so you do an NBA, you're doing, you know, um, any more consulting work happening then, or take me through it? Uh, so I, eventually when, you know, with Black Monday, with the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, Pinnacle left the U.S. market, you know, a week or two before the Super Bowl. I think it was 2008. Uh, uh, Jan yeah, January 11th, 2007. I'll never forget the day. 2007, uh, yeah. Yeah. So same same time, they're like, we have to let you know. <laughs> Thank you for working with us. Uh, because of the change of law, they don't want they don't need me anymore. It's like okay, well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it, it always treated me fairly. So, um, and about a, a so I continued betting. Um, about a year later, I think I was doing a lot of baseball then. Baseball over, overnights again, not necessarily the uh, the smartest thing to attack. But the back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. If you're betting overnight baseball totals, uh, they were they were very beatable. I think, you know, I, you think, bet, I like, think even today, even today, Elihu, overnight is is a great start for anybody. Yeah. Overnight is the way to go, isn't it? You know, I think. But go ahead. I don't and, mean to interrupt. Yeah. So, and one thing that you know Henry taught me very well is the value of looking at you know closing lines. So if you measure, you know, you have you have two different metrics to look at a model. You can look at 
how did the how does my bet do versus the closing line? So if I bet a baseball game at minus seven and a half over one ten, and it closes minus one thirty, that's a really smart bet. Um, the other metric that you can use for testing models, and this was what I did even before Pinnacle, was you you grade your model versus historical lines. And this will, I mean, it's not perfect, but this will really save a lot of heartburn. You know, before you bet any model, say, well, how has it done in the past? Um, and really have a good estimate of where, what your edge is and where it's valid. Now, when you say, so, you, when you grade it against historical, uh, historical, is it the historical close? Yes. Well, you do, ideally you do both. <laughs> historical so, open you, and close? Yes. Gotcha. So you say, and what you should expect to see is you're always going to do about three, you know, three, four, three or four percent worse against closers than you do in openers or two percent i mean it depends on the market mm. like when i looked at tennis my my hold would drop you know two two and a half percent between open and close so you have you know you have to decide am i smart enough to beat everyone in the world or you know how soft it's a trade-off the less i bet the easier it is to bet the bigger my greed the smarter i have to be to, to bet this amount because mm. if i'm you know if i'm going to bet overnight baseball and i want to bet 2,000 on a total, I can do that on an overnight. If I want to bet 20,000, I'm going to have to wait till, you know, 11 a.m. Eastern to bet that. And by then the markets are a lot tougher and your hold goes down. So it's, you got to be real honest with yourself and say, you know, what can I beat? And if I can't beat the 11 a.m. total, I better bet before then, even though I'm not going to make nearly as much. You'll have a higher hold, but your, your amount will be a lot less, as you said. I'll have a positive hold, yes. <laughs> yeah, positive. So, so whether, you know, in, in, doing all, in, in doing all this analysis, how hard was it to get data to do historical line analysis and stuff back in 06, 07? You know what I mean? What, was it as, as prevalent? Because I remember I had to buy my historical line data from a guy, Andy Escoe, um, in Las Vegas, and it was you know it was called thelogicalapproach.com. That was the only place I could find historical data. I remember that site. I don't remember it, it, what they had, but believe yeah. it or not, that site is still the exact same as it is now. If you go to thelogicalapproach.com, it's the uh -huh. exact same exact same look as it was in 1999. Like I can't believe that he hasn't updated it in all these years. But it looks it looks like a 1999 website. Um, but yeah. that was the only place I found data. You know, I, was it hard back then or, you know, for me, it wasn't uh, a lot of what I, so a lot, I, I knew people who would scrape lines, uh, you know, I, and in fact, with tennis, it was quite by accident that I ended up betting tennis. It was because someone on a team I was with was a compulsive tennis scraper who scraped not just the closing lines, but all the stats for every game. And it's like, and when we were talking about it, he's like, yes, I'm working. I'm trying. I called him KGB because he was Russian and had choppy English. But, you know, he was trying to bet a tennis model, but did, had, had no idea how to build a model. So I said, well, let me see the data. And then perfect cleaned data with, you know, openers, closers, you know, points, stats for each game. So, uh, but uh, I have not had trouble getting most, you know, data for closing lines or from, sports data because I always I usually work in partnerships and when I work in a partnership I generally want to do the analysis and I want someone else to get all the data Perfect. now I'll help a little bit with cleaning but you know there are much you know I don't, I've never scraped anything but lots of people have and so I don't need that skill beautiful great 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 point um, another lesson you know learned that you don't have to know how to do it all you just have to know how to partner with people that could do the stuff that you don't do 
Yeah, um, I don't even like to bet. So yeah. I, I, I have partners who will do a lot of the betting for me. Absolutely. I don't like bookkeeping. So someone does the bookkeeping, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do the analysis. I'll do the risk management. Love it. Okay. So you're, you're doing well now for yourself. You're, 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 this is your career now. Like, you know, who would have thought, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I mean? You're thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to be a lawyer or, or I might be a mathematician, a lawyer. And now you are a mathematician, but you're like, it's in sports betting of all things. Um, you're, you know, you're seeing life as a professional gambler. Um, nobody ever signs up for that. I don't think anybody <laughs> ever says, at least back then when, you know, when we were uh, in our generation, nobody says, Hey, when I grew up, I want to be a pro gambler. Um, so how does, how does, you know, adapting to this lifestyle, um, just, you know, I, I think it's important for people to understand like this, you know, what's different about it. Was it, was it, did you just say, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm just an, uh, 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 risk analyst and i just met you know like how did you see it how did other people view you um did you advertise that you were a pro gambler go ahead i didn't really advertise it but at one point i would call my at one point i you know said my job is i'm a pro gambler but that sounds seedy and more recently i I go with data scientists because i'm doing data science it just happens that i'm you know analyzing (laughs) it is data science it's pure data science um but there's kind of a negative connotation about being a professional gambler. Still till this day, right? You believe so? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, girls are much are not interested in dating a professional da- uh, professional gambler. But if you're a data scientist, that's desirable. <laughs> I love it. So, you're, you know, you're married at this time. Um, when, when, when I got were... married in 2008. Yeah. So Okay. So she married a pro gambler. Yeah. And how did you convince her to marry a pro gambler? She settled. Not <laughs> stop. So, so, so because so, like, okay, we did for a couple of years and we we're just compatible. So beautiful. Because you know, and, and and but then you real. Um, so yeah, I I think it's it's funny because I used to always myself. I would never like you know try to advertise that. It just oh, there's a negative like you're gonna gamble your life away or are you a degenerate? Um, you know, you get these like negative looks, and then occasionally you get like, wow, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. But for it's, it's either one or the other. It was like, the, the, yeah, and a majority of them just now. The, if you, if you're doing it for 20 years, yeah, and you don't look like a bum, then you know that's helpful. But still, I've been a data scientist for 20 years. Sounds a lot safer than I've been, uh, you know, pro gambler. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Uh, so you're building up your bank or you're doing well. Do you consult at this point for any other places or, or what's happening? Let's take me through down the timeline. So I think around, around 2007 or 2008, I started doing consulting for Sportsbook Review. Okay. Which uh, doing complaints. So it combines, you know, the understanding of how the sports industry works, uh, how the, the rules should be applied and actually my law degree. And I actually, I enjoyed the dispute resolution process. Buzzsaw, buzz, buzzsaw, right? Was that the guy that ran it? Uh, no, I think it was Bill, Bill Dozer. Bill Dozer, that's John, right. Bill. John Walker, uh, you know, a gotcha. few others. Yeah. Um, so it, it was fun. I mean, I handled thousands of complaints and I learned so much about fraud, fraud prevention, Ukrainian fake passports, Russian fake passports, passport checksums, um, identifying locations, identifying devices, the methodologies of people who are cheating. So it was, it was just, or methodology of people who are just bonus playing. 
So it was really fascinating. I learned a lot, even, you know, EV stuff. Sportsbook Review back then did not take any affiliate money, did not advertise anybody. At least they said they didn't. Um, and um, and they were really like the go-to for resolution. And you were the guy behind resolving a back lot when of I was When I was just in seven there, yeah. When you were what? My moderator handle was Justin Seven. Justin Seven, gotcha. Okay, so I didn't even know that. That's cool to know. So you handled, <laughs> you, you, you moderated all this stuff, and um, were there were the sports books responsive? Let's just say when you sided with the player and you said, "Hey, listen, you guys are doing this wrong." How, how responsive were the sports books? Um, a, a, major, a, ma- a majority of the time, they would respond. Um, but the other thing is probably. 95% of the complaints we got, the sports book was in the right. Gotcha. Or, you know, all of the, the biggest thing we had over and over were fraud rings, opening up multiple accounts with fake IDs and things. Gotcha. So I, I remember I, you know, bet three sixty five. there were all kinds of complaints about them stiffing people and every single complaint I, you know, I, and I, I, I met with their, one of their managers, uh, in, you know, fraud prevention. And so we looked at a couple. I said, all right, uh, here's his passport. Okay. Here's how you calculate a checksum. You know, so every, there's a bunch of numbers on the passport and there's an algorithm you can use to say if this checksum is a valid checksum. It's either valid or invalid. If it's invalid, somebody made it and didn't know the formula for checksum. And so they would say, so they would show me one passport and say, so here's one mistake. You know, this is an invalid checksum. This is a, a forged passport. Oh, okay. All right, now here's another one. You can see... Um, show us six passports with the same checksum with six different identities. Yeah. So they figured out the checksum, but then they use the same checksum on six different passports. Yeah. Or there'd be just, you know, comical mistakes. And with Bet365, every single complaint, you know, that I, I saw against them where a person was, you know, complaining that they're getting robbed. No, they weren't. It was someone taking a shot. I love it. This is so great. You just solve problems. I, that's why I called you the problem solver. So this is uh, so, so so bet three sixty five. You're now like you're showing how valuable you are um, to be able to you know you could have ran the run the fraud department for anybody any sportsbook. Did anybody approach you saying you know forget the sportsbook review, come work for us? <laughs> no one offered that to me back then, but now I'm doing some consulting on fraud, on fraud prevention. Beautiful. So you know there's there are so many ways a, a sportsbook can get robbed. And, you know, there's, there are things they can do to make it better. There are things they can do to make it worse. You know, something that you're going to do that, what you see today in the U.S. books is offering lucrative bonuses. So one of the you know, key metrics on how likely am I to experience fraud is what is the, you know, what is the payoff per fraudulent account? So like if I look at, um, you know, you, you had some sports books in the U.S. offering a $5,000 risk-free bet. So if you, you, you get a place a $5,000 bet, if you lose it, you get a $5,000 free play, basically. So it's not as good as a free play, but it's you. there's no rollover on it. The equity on that, if you play it correctly, is about $2,600. So knowing that, for every account you can open up that has, assuming you're bankrolled and don't need to worry about the risk, uh, every $5,000 account, every, every one of these accounts is worth $2,600 in cash. So you need, I think you need about at least $50,000 bankroll to play this correctly. If you have less than that, you need a, a, a backer. <laughs> um, but when you have an account value that's that high per bonus, it, it just it, you're it, encouraging rampant fraud. So you know 
how much does it cost to set up a, a you know, if, if you have a bad guy who wants to set up a fraudulent account for every persona, he needs a Chromebook, he needs a fake ID, he needs a unique IP address and probably a unique mailing address. Uh, a person can get a Chromebook for what, 200 bucks. So any, anytime your bonus account is worth more than say four or $500 per account, you are highly incentivizing fraud. Amazing. They're giving it all away, a lot of these guys. They're not just giving it away. They're encouraging people to commit crimes because of the payoffs on these, these promotions. Is collusion the number one crime, you believe, when it comes what to... What do you mean? What is, the, what is the definition of collusion? Saying, you know, multiple... using One guy using multiple personas or, or maybe one guy having a team um, of not, not just, you know, having a team of guys attack at the same time. Okay. No, that's not a party foul. If you and your 10 friends who are oh. all real people make the same play at the same time, that's, uh, that's rough on the book and they have ways to oppose that, but that's not a party foul. If Spanky personally creates 10 different accounts, controls 10 different accounts mm. um, with fictitious IDs that, you know, uh, representing people that don't exist or are dead, that's, that's identity fraud. And identity fraud was the biggest problem you know, for all these things. Because everyone wants to create multiple accounts. You know, if you have a fresh account, you get a bonus. If you have a fresh account uh, at a, a market tester, then your auto move gets reset. So all these things give people incentives to, you know, see, so, you know, like even books that don't give bonuses, there's a advantage to not being on an auto move because you can bet more <laughs> before the price gets worse. And for, you know, big hitters, this is a value. And, this, you know, which brings up a different point. Uh, form of, I'm not going to call it fraud, but a different problem, uh, what I'll call whale conversion. You know, you have a losing whale who has a value of minus, you know, he's, he's down 4 million and uh, sharp players are highly incentivized to find whale players that are down. Because when you flip a whale, uh, most sports books are very reluctant to reevaluate that player. So it's very common for a whale uh, to be ignored until he gets until he gets it's too late. Until it's so too late. Black. Yeah. So they give up, you know, you give up. If, if you don't have a way to recognize what's happening, then this whale is down 4 million is not going to get reprofiled till he's winning. Whereas if you have good fraud prevention, this whale who is down 3 million, you recognize a change in his play style. He's, he, he wins a million back, but you save 3 million because you spotted him before most people would identify him. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of the stuff you say hits a little close to home, but uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't need to talk too much about it. But good, I love it. All right, so let's get back to uh, you know we get a little too deep here. A little, oh man, okay. You want to so, hear about what we're doing on uh, curveball analysis? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's. So so. All right, so, so you're you you're you're doing a sportsbook review. You're betting now. Um, you know, what year are we in now? We're in uh, 2008, so 2009. This is when right around then is when I was really shifting from doing pregame to live. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there were live was fairly new as for U.S. sports. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the Europe had had it for a while, but there weren't a lot of good modelers out doing U.S. baseball, U.S. football. It was all by the seat of their pants. And if you did a little bit of, an, you know, a little bit of analysis, you could do really well. So I remember for, for a while, 
Pinnacle would have the, you know, with, at the bottom of or the top of the ninth, home team is up. So if they shut out the team, you know, one run lead, if they shut them out, the game ends, they win. Home team is going to bring in their closer. So in every instance, like that type of baseball situation, Pinnacle was offering um, basically a shutout at minus 300. But there were uh, two closers who were much better than the minus 300 price. I think Papelbon and Rivera. So anytime you were watching a Sox or a Yankees game of the ninth and it's a close game, you bet the, you know, seven runs scored, you bet under seven and a half minus 300 and the fair prices, it was closer to minus 400. So there, there were, there, but there weren't just spots. There were, you know, entire approaches that were, the lines would just be wrong the whole time for the, you know, in the U.S. Now it got better pretty quickly. The, you know, in the next couple of years, the sports book really started tightening up their in-game pricing, at least the market testers. And to, to get better at these in-game pricing, this is just you get beat enough times and then you just adjust by just booking the sharp action in these scenarios. Is that, you know, that, are they... that doesn't work. Okay. That doesn't work. You have, if you, you have to have a model and a model has to identify the situations. I mean, it's, there's so many things that you can get screwed up. Um, you know, if, if a pace changes and, you know, you have an expected pace and the pace happens in college football, college basketball, even NFL. And when, you know, for example, the Patriots are going to throw one pass and run the ball every single time. Uh, your, your pay, your, the pace reflects that. I mean, the total drops, but you have to think about why is it dropping and how much should it drop? So there's, there's, I mean, there's so many aspects of an in-game model. Um, and the more people crunch on it, the, you know, the better it gets. I mean, I've, I remember I've done so much analysis and seen so many things. I just, huh, you know, I didn't expect this. But, there are groups still. Yeah. There are groups. I know there's one group based out of London. I think they are that they're mm-hmm. betting Pinnacle in game, and they're just, you know, they're they're making money every single day doing it. Um, I forgot what the name of the company was. Um, you know, Is that it, Bloom's group or I, I? No, I don't think so. I think it was another mm-hmm. group. I forget, but um, you know, and, and like. Pinnacle's booking the action. They're paying them out, but they, you're telling me that they, you know, there's got to be a way to learn from, you know, let's just, okay, you have your own model, but to defi- refine your model by booking the sharp work, can that, can you refine it looking at situation? That's hard. Yeah. That, that, that is, it's, it's really hard to do it that way. You can, but you need a data science team. You need to, to match up every bet to a game state. Mm. And then you well, find the game states where they where the sharps are telling you you're wrong. Yeah, with enough with enough de- with enough data points with enough and, bleeding with enough yeah. bleeding. Yes, yes. But exactly. it's it's not it's not something a trader can do. You have to combine the data, and it's a pain in the ass to take a wager to attach it to a game state and then create a database out of it. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, and you need a data team to do it. And I think this is why most sports books don't try to do it this way. So if, if in Pinnacle's case, if they're getting beaten over and over, their remedy is they probably lower the limits for everybody. Gotcha. And but still collect the data points. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. As long okay. as they, but I don't know if they've actually invested the money and the math into you know improving the model based on the bets that are beating them. So live, uh, you know, is, 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 you know, is a big thing. Do you, you know, just, just to get into the modern day, do you expect, you know, right now the pregame handle is a lot higher than live. Um, do you in us sports, do you expect the live handle to overcome the pregame handle? And if so, when? 
I absolutely think it will, especially with the you know with all the mobile betting in the in populating everywhere in the U.S. I thought it was already pretty close to 50-50, but you know it, I, I bet it'll go up at least ten percent a year. So if, if, if we're actually at forty percent live, then I'd say within a year it'll be a majority. Gotcha. All right, so uh, let's get back to, to, your, to your, you know, your career and stuff. You know, you've been so you've made most. Of the, if somebody says Elihu, where did you make most of your earn um, betting sports? Would you say it was live? Would you say it was tennis? What was it exactly? Where was your? <laughs> uh, I'll say it was U.S. sports books. Okay, so it was because, just recently. Recently. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've maybe that's not most of it, but uh, like the, the, the last year has been the single best year I have had. And that is entirely because of U.S. sports books. Okay. So, you know, when you have, you know, you have the offshores that have been run, doing things for 20 years. And they have a lot of smart people. And they have people who have domain knowledge. They have experience. They know bad thing, what bad things can happen. And they can prevent a lot of them. Mm. They know not to take correlated parlays. They know not to sell field goals for 10 cents a field goal on over under three and a half. They, mm. um, you know, they... They, they just know things and the offshores, the, 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 sorry, the legal U S sports books do not have first, they don't have nearly uh, the experience that I think most of the offshores have second, for the most part, the U S books are not market testers. Now circa is um, I I'm seeing some signs of intelligence that Caesars even, but for the most part, the U S books are just marketing companies and they're not investing much in math. You know, if, if you're not going to invest in the math and the data science and you're going to rely on other people, then you are very susceptible. You know, you're susceptible, especially susceptible to manipulation. You're susceptible to pricing mistakes when you don't even realize you're making mistakes. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to, to bleed a sports book that isn't going to pay for math. Why do you think, Elihu, just curious, why <laughs> do you think that they, because to pay for the math is such a small fraction of the cost that they spend on the marketing. Um, why wouldn't they just, just take a small little sliver? Cause you could get some great math for just a fraction of what you're spending on marketing. Why do they not do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, great math actually is pretty expensive, <laughs> no, you're well, get... but nothing's going to come close to these, to what they're spending on marketing. You know what I mean? You're right. Oh, true, I agree with true. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, Maybe they have convinced themselves that they don't need it because they can just copy other people. Maybe they can, you know, their, their business model is, well, any person, I'll just kick them out if they beat me, but they would save a lot more. You know, the people who beat them would beat them more slowly and they could still kick them out, but with a smaller loss if they did better math. Or they could, you know, run a real book and take all the bets. Um, I, I sort of feel like it's a little bit dishonorable to kick someone out for, for their brain. Because, you know, in, I understand why a casino would do it in blackjack. You know, they can, they can half-shoe you, but they really can't stop you from winning if you're going to just sit there patiently, back count, and bet. In sports betting, you know, if you, you always have the possibility to slow down or stop a player. Now, if, you know, you can do the good math. You can do good trading. You get a good player database. So there are going to be a few people that still beat you, but they're going to give you enough information to make it worthwhile. So they have fair ways to, to do this where they don't have to, you know, choke someone out, put a collar on them. <laughs> um, it just seems dishonorable. Not only, they're not, they're not, they're, they're not bookmaking. They're just, they're, they're dress drug making. dealing. That's they're it. Dress, they're they're dress drug making. dealing. 
they're drug dealing. Dressmaking. You know, dressmaking. Dress <laughs> <I'll go with laughs> so, uh, I mean, the whole, the whole idea is that they want to find, you know, the, the big losers are worth much more than, you know, small losers. So they want to find, they want to get lots of people in the door, figure out who are the dumbest who have a lot of money to lose and really target them. And you'll, you'll see most sports books, they give out pretty crazy incentives if they think you're a whale loser. So it's, and if you're not getting crazy incentives, ask for them and you will. You know, it's, it's, it's insane. I, I, I you know, yes. it's insane. It, 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 it's, it, it's, you know, you, you mentioned incentivizing fraud. You, you're in, you know, what they give these whales, it incentivizes flipping a whale to be the number one uh, tactic uh, I think going forward for anybody, um, it's yeah. unbelievable. You know, when when it comes to just the factor of bet, just just the factor alone. Forget the bonuses, forget all the perks and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Just the factor alone of bet sizing from what the house limit is, or whatever you know, what your uh, yeah. fresh account limit is, to these whale accounts. It's unbelievable. Well, even the fresh accounts. I mean, there are ways where you you know. There are strategies with fresh accounts where you mm. can basically avoid limits. So there are, you know, yeah, we're every gonna, account you. We're, we're gonna, well, get, I'm not going to go too deep into that. No, but, we're going to get into that at, at the conference. No, 100%. But I want to. Yeah. Yeah. So I love but, that. Uh, yeah. But, you know, but like a, a, a DraftKings account might be worth, you know, 10, 10 20,000 typically before they call you. But if you use the right strategy, the value of that goes up to 200,000 per, oh. per account. Yes. So. You know, so now the, for the, the, the sharp fraud payoff is, you know, 190000 per DraftKings account, plus whatever bonuses they're going to give you on the way. So you could, you could sell for sports books, Elohu, like, you know, like, would you, what would you tell sports books? You know, you've seen it all. You've, you've worked with Pinnacle. Mm-hmm. You've worked around the world, uh, uh, everywhere, you know. So what would you say, you know, what, what would the right uh, approach be? You know, hire more, put more money into the math. Is that the answer? Oh, and trading. So a lot of the U.S. sports books don't actually hire traders. They have key punchers who click approve or unapprove a bet. But they're not actually, you know, you look at some of these books, they're dealing off market prices. They're ignoring the market testers. They're doing having opinions with no basis. So and this is, you know, when, when you see a number that's a point off market on an NBA total, uh, but it all, you know, there's, there's a firm market with the market testers. And they're out there in left field. And there's, you know, if they were consistently getting the best of it, I'd say great. But there's no chance in hell that these off-market numbers are uh, sharp. You know, it, it may be perhaps a way to, to screw your customers over a little bit more if they're betting one side. But, yeah, get math, get traders, or integrate the two. You know, there's, you get automatic trading. You know, that Pinnacle was built on automatic trading. You know, they were the, I think the first company to, to use the automove. They were um, the absolute first. And it was, it was, it's on, you know, and, and, uh, and yeah, go ahead. And, and there are ways you, you know, the U S books don't want to move the lines as often because that costs the money. Every time you move a line, any parlays are going to get disrupted. So I, I can understand why they don't want to move the line as much. Um, but there are ways to do that t- too. You know, some sports books run what's called an accumulator. That is, you're not going to move a line until you have a certain amount of volume. So you set the accumulator five times as high, and then you have the minimum move at you know, five cents. So you're not going to get nearly as many moves, but you're still going to move 
in reaction to whatever markets you want to respect. So there are ways to do it, but they, again, they're not investing in the math or the, the brain power to try to, or the software even. So there's, I mean, there's so many different angles that they could improve things, but that doesn't, you know, all they want to focus on right now. Now, the other issue is, you know, where does an executive focus his energies? You know, if you're the CEO of a sports book, a, a fairly new one, you know, are you going to put all your time into marketing or are you going to put your time into interviewing or, you know, building a team up? Because you, I mean, you really have to build a team up before you can do all this stuff. You just the accumulator thing is is is, is important. But I, I I just want to comment on that. Like some of these guys don't even chart their own work, so there's not even like everything is just using a market consensus line that's scraped or that that's taken from a third party, um, or there's you know the actual you know you can have a guy uh, a sharp let's just say that's unrecognized lay five on a game for 20,000 and, and, and they might, you know, if the market goes to four and a half, they're going to just go right to four and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so like, well, just no, well described as a disease. Yeah. There's no charting. And I think that's something that's just, uh, you know, if you ask any, and like you said, bookmaker trader, that it's just unheard of that you, you, you don't book to your, your chart. I just, I, I can't well, understand. Go ahead. You know, why, if you are running a marketing company and yeah. your goal is to throw out any sharp person, why would you bother charting? Yeah. Because once the, yeah. you figure out he's sharp, you're not going to move on it. You're just going to kick him out. No, it's, 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 that's the, that's the major, that's the major thing. It's funny because you think you could still run a marketing company and get the math and the trading behind you. And still do okay, like you, you, yeah. you know, like they say, it's not they're not mutually exclusive. Like you could do both, and you could do both well. Uh, and this protects you from whale flipping. Yes, because when if you have your own charting and you have your own opinions of smart people that you're taking bets from, and you have a whale behavior change. I mean, whales win, whales lose. Whales win big, they lose big. But what if his behavior changes? You have no way to recognize that because you don't have your own sharp line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy, but you know what, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's an epi epi epidemic, like you said, but I, uh, um, uh, you know, we, you know, just from our side of the counter, like you said, we're able to just adapt and overcome, uh, although you hate to see it happen, but it's just part of the environment. All right. So I, I I'm loving this. You know, I love talking theory with you and stuff. You're always, it's always such a great conversation. What um let, let, let's I want to finish off your career and then we can get a little bit more into the theory. So you know you had your best year you know when the, in the U.S. regulated markets. Um, this is great, and we're, we're going to talk a, a little bit more about that. Let's talk about more of the consulting work you've done. What mm -hmm. other problems have you solved for sports books um, that you've seen? Like, you know, can you get into a little bit of that? Like you know, because you are the go-to problem solver, and I've you know, if I ever have a problem, mm -hmm. if I have a question, I come to you. So, what other questions have you answered over the years? I, I've done a lot of work on in-game modeling, mm. so pricing all aspects of a model. You know, game, you know, game spread, game total, first half lines, you know, next score, punt, whatever. So I've done you know a lot on football, soccer, um, baseball, tennis. Um, I've done a lot of weird problems. So every every sports book needs a good push chart. So I've done push charts in just about every sport. And a, a lot of sports books do these push charts incorrectly. Or they're, you know, work gets dated because things change. 
you know, you look at, for example, you look at NBA money lines. Your NBA money line chart today should be very different than what your your spread in total to money line conversion chart should be different today than it was ten years ago. I love it. And you, you notice I said spread and total conversion chart to a money line because the total affects the money line also. But most sports books don't even include the total in their conversion chart. How much uh, would I have? You know, in this day, how, like, you know, just in NBA for instance. You know, a half a point or NFL, any sport, a half a point, mm -hmm. what it's worth, obviously, it's worth more if the total's lower. How much yeah. more is it worth, uh, you know, would you say in different sports? Like, take me to an example. Uh, NBA, mm. uh, a total might, the push rate on a total might be between 2.15% if you have a high total. It might be two and a half if you have a very, very low total, or at least 2.45. So I can, you know, three-tenths three of a percent doesn't sound like that much, I guess. Uh, but there are bigger uh, deviations. You know, instead of looking at, you know, the push rate, look at money lines are off more than the spreads or totals in general. You know, there are more conversion mistakes made on money lines than probably anything else. First half, big, big time too? Uh, yes. And if you're, here's a tip for you. If you want to bet in the U.S. books, Look for books offering first half money lines that the sports books that the offshores don't, and there you will see the monster mistakes. Because they're making their numbers without even looking at anybody else's. Yes, any instance where a U.S. book is making numbers and there is no other market to gauge it to, that there's going to be problems in it. Historically, the biggest sports books out there, when the college football, this is even going back 30 years, you know, the street guys, they wouldn't even yeah. hang a money line up for something that was over a 10 point favorite. Historically, now the offshore is a 25 point favorite. I don't, I don't, I think Pinnacle, I think your cutoff for college football might have been like 30 or whatever. They wouldn't even put a money line up. Um, mm -hmm. They wouldn't even let you buy or sell a half a point when you got up to that level, um, you know, in the 34 range or whatever. You um, can still price it. You can still price that. You can price the money lines. You can price the half points. Is uh, you reason? don't have to. Go ahead. You, don't, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be as good as anyone else. Hmm. So if there's only you know if there's only a hundred data points, and you're trying to say what is the push rate of something that's typically you're guessing is about four percent, you know you have a monster standard deviation on that. You could be off you know a percent you know even two percent pretty easily, but as long as no one else can do it better than you, it's okay to hang a number up. It's okay to hang a number up that's wrong as long as no one can figure out how wrong it is hmm. well said well said so all right th these are great problems that you've solved for sports or do you think you know where where do you see yourself going forward you're still going to keep betting you know are you having a you know let's talk about what makes you tick because you've made enough money you've been so successful you've consulted for sports books what's next for elahu well next is i'm playing elden ring i have a uh, you know probably at least 100 hours left to beat the game um, you don't, you don't play Elden Ring, I guess. Play I, I, I don't, I don't, but how, how, how is it? My, my uh, son might play it. I'm not sure. But it's, 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 it's life, life changing. Everyone should play it. But, um, you know, I enjoy sports betting. I enjoy problem solving and I like that aspect a lot about it. So I, 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 I find it rewarding. Um, but the pursuit of money, if you're doing something solely for the accumulation of wealth, to me, that is, that is not a big motivator. You know, once you, you know, how much money do you need? Once you have enough, you're not going to, money becomes less interesting. Mm. It's still, I mean, money is all we matters. It, it's a way you evaluate how valuable what you're doing is, but it's, 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to work 80 hours a week if I'm not hungry. Uh, what I would like to do, you know, at some point I envisioned changing my direction. I don't know how soon or, you know, five, 10 years, but, you know, doing something more public focused, I, I, making the world better through public policy, perhaps. You know, you see, we've seen all these policy decisions in, in government. You know, how do we handle COVID? How do people handle it? Uh, now we're dealing with Ukraine. You know, you look at the Ukrainian war and everyone says Russia is bad. You know, they're, you know, but if you look at what happened in the 30 years before, it was predictable. And with good policy for 30 years in the past, this probably wouldn't have happened. So mistakes were made by the U.S. and other countries, you know, before this ever happened that led to this. So now Putin's still a bad guy. Putin is still, you know, a war warmonger. But with public policy and thinking about problems before they become disastrous problems, you can mitigate them. And there are, you know, all kinds of problems with solutions, you know, policy solutions, whether you're dealing with global warming, drug overdoses. I mean, there's so many things where using data science, you can make everyone's lives better through policymaking. But it's tough because so many of the, so many of the decision makers don't care about data. Amazing. It's crazy. You're, 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 I love your deep thinking. Um, when I, in the intro, I called you the problem solver and you're trying to solve, you're trying to make the world a better place, very noble and, and uh, you know, all the credit, man. I, I, I wish I had the aspiration to be able to, to do something like that <laughs> as, as, as you do. Um, I'm, you know, I'm still over here trying to lay five in a game that closes seven. So, um, well, that's, you I, know, that's, that, that causes a problem for somebody. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, but I'm not solving any problems. I'm creating problems, I guess, right? But no, well, well said, man. I, I wish you would, and, and I, I, I can't wait to, to hang out and um and and you're really you're nothing but respect for you. We never even talked about your book, man, that you wrote over a decade ago. Uh, so yeah, you know, I can't believe we skipped that. Let's talk about that. Your book was at the time, and it still is a great read. Revolutionary. Go ahead, talk about it. Huh. So I I always wanted to write a book. So you know you got lots. Of, I wanted to jump out of an airplane once. I did. I wanted to. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Wanted to I, write a book. I also wanted to write a science fiction. I did. I wrote a terrible book and sold three copies of it, but I had fun doing it, something I wanted to do. So, <laughs> uh, but, the, but that book, um, yeah, it, it's, it was fun to write. Conquering Risk is the name of the book. Yeah. And I'm still actually getting royalties today. It, it's still selling pretty well. well let's so, talk about a little bit about the book. You know, look, just, sure. Go ahead. Uh, lots of, I mean, lots of just basic math analysis on everything. So there was a lot, there was a focus on modeling because that's what I thought was cool. That's what I thought I knew. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, the approaches in there that at that time would probably beat openers, maybe not in the NFL, but the other stuff, it was, it, there was nothing genius about it. It was just a systematic approach on how to solve a problem. Um, and there was, you know, stuff on props. There was uh, a little bit of conversions, although, what I wrote then, <laughs> I'm writing a new book now, and I'm going back reading what I wrote then. I was like, oh, my God. The first thing I have to say is, nope, this was wrong. <laughs> gotcha. So you should have talking like a, about – You know how like there's an errata for any textbook? You should have like an, a, a, a writer's notes on, I think this might be uh, – but it's hard because you, you don't want to rewrite the whole book then. 
Um, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to touch the book, but I'm, uh, you know, writing on things that are, uh, well, it's, it's a different subjects pretty much entirely, but the, the ones that it does touch again, it's very different approaches. Beautiful. I recommend the book. You, you know, I know you say it's old and it's outdated, which is bullshit because I think that anybody, no, I, you know, you, you could read books from 20, 30 years ago and you could still get nuggets out of them. Yeah. It's not it's just the thought process, how people think mm -hmm. and how you approach a problem. This is everything. You know, if somebody thinks that they're going to get a book and it's good, you know, X marks the spot and here's where X is, you know, you can't look for that. You got to be able to find a way to find your, draw your own map, but the book teaches you how to draw your own map and then yeah. find out where the gold is i think that's so important and your book i always recommended it for years and years well, i loved you. it and um i think it was it was uh it was one of the staples up there with stanford wong sharp sports betting and um and and a, and a couple of the other ones um uh you know weighing the odds and for me the complete book of sports yeah. betting jack moore there's a lot of them um well, i appreciate that one of the other things i think that i tried to do is give somebody a reality check just how much work and how much effort it takes to win a sports betting. I mean, a lot of people think I'm just going to go bet. I'm smart. I'm going to win. You know, and I used to, I used to guest lecture at Notre Dame and I would teach a, a segment on healthy living, which we explored gambling. And all, you know, I, at the start of the class, I'd ask how many of you think, you know, you can win a sports betting and you know, half the class would raise their hands <laughs> and all, the, all the athletes, were, all the student athletes were sure that they could beat sports betting. So then in the, in the class, I would give each of them, make them pick the spread on all the college football games and NFL games on a weekend. And the, the, the college players were sure they could beat it. And then the next week, we'd come back and look at how much money the class as a whole, as a whole lost. And, you know, if, if a person picked, you know, 45 plays, they probably had a, you know, 88% chance of losing, and that was pretty close to what happened. And then the class would get crushed. But even the athletes that lost were still convinced that they would win going forward. <laughs> but yeah, the, but back to the, the point is it's it's extremely hard. It is not easy to beat at sports, not easy to beat sports betting. And so many people have this perception uh, they're out of reality, out of touch of reality, because it takes a lot of work to have any chance of winning at this long term. And if you don't have the discipline to read a, a 250 page book and go through the math, you have no chance in hell of winning at sports betting. Very well said. That's going to take you to the final thing. Name of the podcast, who be better betters. Uh, you kind of just gave it, you know what I mean? The advice, but you know, let's sum it up. What, what, you know, for somebody that says, listen, I want to put the time in. I want to, I really believe I could do it. Elihu, tell me what you, what, what's the one thing I should never forget to win at sports betting. Well, I'm going to give you two things. Go give it to me. Read every book out there, even bad ones sometimes they have one good thing in them and second no one ever went broke from under betting no one ever went broke from under betting i'm, I'm gonna so, stop. let me just stop you because <laughs> your first one read every book when you say that you you know you you practice what you preach if you guys go on amazon and you look at all the gambling books elohu you are well known for writing thorough reviews very good <laughs> reviews like your reviews of books are, are have convinced me to either play or pass 
on some of these books. So you practice what you preach. You've you've given honest reviews. There was one book I think you and I dis- might have disagreed on. I think I told you about yeah. that. Larry, whatever. Larry Seidel or something. I forget what it was. Oh, that was a great book on football, <laughs> yeah, basketball was... betting. He actually wrote several. I think he wrote three different books, gotcha. but they were pretty duplicative. Got, yeah. Wow. I I remember, but you, uh, but yeah, you, um, you were really, um, um, uh, you practice what you preach on that first one. So yes, great. And, and what your second bit of advice was nobody goes broke under betting. Elaborate a little bit more for the audience. You know, the biggest mistake that every better who loses makes is they bet more than they should. If you bet, so, you know, if you look at how quickly, say you're a smart better and you make winning plays. How fast is your money going to grow? If you bet the right, if you bet the perfect amount, it'll grow fast. If you bet too much, you're going to go bust. If you bet too little, you're still going to make money, but you're going to be insulated from mistakes. So no person ever went bust. No smart person ever went broke from betting too little. So when you're thinking about how much to bet until you are a greater God of mathematics, and even then, it's always better to err on the side of betting too little. This is such huge advice. This is, I, I can't stress it enough. Unbelievable advice, Elihu. Thank you for that. I, you know, you being in the game for a long time, and I've seen it myself, I have seen some of the world's smartest betters, some of the world's smartest minds, smartest handicappers. But when it comes to gambling, they were terrible at gambling because they violated that second bit of advice you said they just could not manage their money and could not know how to not you know either chase you know stop chasing a loss or because it's a mental game like you said every game everything's a game it's a mental game to be able to know how to go through that bad stretch but still stay on course and not over bet and i think that it, 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 a lot of people fall, succumb to, to, to that mental aspect of the game. Um, that, that, and I think that um, it, it's such a, such a huge thing that you said that for anybody listening out there. If you want to stay in this for the long haul and, uh, and not go broke, not be tapioca, um, don't <laughs> be afraid to underbet and, 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 and manage your money. Very, very well said, Elohu. Elohu, I really appreciate it, man. You're the best. Uh, I can't wait to see you uh, in Vegas and um, and yeah, beyond. looking forward to it. Yeah, same here. And um, and um, for anybody that doesn't know if this, if you're listening to this before Bet Bash, Elihu's going to be at Bet Bash. Him and I are going to be on the same panel. Honored to be with my man Elihu on the same panel. Um, and uh, I know Elihu, you're going to be breaking stuff down that uh, that is you know that we kind of not. It's so strong. That I do not, you know, what I mean, you tried to get into it a little bit here. Yeah, you, you asked me not to give it away too soon. So, yeah, okay. like, I, you know, I'm asking just give it away at Bet Bash. You know what I mean? We want the yeah. people that, that come to the day because I'm just, you know, when you told me the stuff, I'm like mind blown. So, you know, I mean, we don't want to, this is stuff that I yeah. think that, you know, that uh, again, this is your pride. You can give it away at time. I appreciate you doing it for me and then holding it because I think that it's something that that people could really learn from and and, and that could actually that still works till this day, like you said, to be able to stretch out that account from twenty twenty five thousand to two hundred thousand. Um, yeah. it's big. Thanks again, Elihu. It's always a pleasure, my man. Hey, it's been fun. And thanks so I'll much. See, I'll, I'll, I'll see you at Bed Bash. <laughs> I'll see you at Bed Bash, my man. And thanks so much for the time. Until next time.